We're looking at the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read this final passage, these final three letters to you. And I don't want you to follow along. We've been doing this all through the series. Don't look at the notes or the passage in your uh, Bible or in the, uh, uh, in, the, in the bulletin. Just listen. Because the book of Revelation was written to a church. It was supposed to be auditory. It was supposed to be heard. In fact, that's the way almost all the Bible was up until just a couple centuries ago. People listened. They didn't know how to read. And so they would listen. And as you listen, imagine, let your imagination go and see if you can get a picture of what's going on. John is using very robust language and he wants you to see something in your mind, in your, in your eye of your imagination. So listen to these last three letters and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Starting in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, but you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then... What you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed Thus, in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Each week uh, we are asking this question, what do you see? Now, what if this letter started with to the angel at the church of Christ the King. What if that was the case? And you were listening to this letter, what would you see in the details of the letter? What would be our reaction? Would we protest and say, oh no, you know, you really don't know Jesus. I'm really alive, look at me. You know, and you'd make motions and do. But he's not impressed by all that. Or would you say, you know, we've got everything we need. I mean, look at this beautiful building and our bank accounts are pretty, yeah, maybe we've got a lot of credit card debt, but no problem with that. We can pay that off. We're making the $25 uh, minimum payment. To the church of Ephesus, we saw, this is borrowed from Dr. Dennis Johnson, discernment without love. They were very good at calling out false teachers, but they did not show love to God or one another. To the church at Smyrna, they were poor. They were impoverished. They they really had no money, literally. And yet Jesus comes to them and says, you know what, you may be poor, but I see the reality behind that. Really, you're rich. And to the church at Pergamum, He says, you're living under the shadow of Satan's throne. I know what your struggles are, but your works are not what need to, to be done to combat the satanic influences of this world. Repent, he tells Pergamum as well. 
At Thyatira, the one we looked at last week, we saw the opposite of Ephesus. We saw love without discernment. They just let everybody run wild. The Nicolaitans were running wild. The Jezebels were running. Everybody's going crazy. But oh, they're, love, they're having lots of potlucks. And just loving everybody. And that's great. But he tells them, you know what? Repent and hold fast to the truth. And now we see these last three churches fascinating. Of all the, of all the seven, only five of them, uh, uh, two of them only are the ones that get commendations. The rest of the five get a spanking. And I hope you understand, he's not talking to the, to the world out there. He's talking to us, to us. And judgment begins at the household of God. Before we start pointing fingers at everybody and everything, which is common, has been common among Christians for centuries, we need to look inside and never more importantly than today. Last three churches. We have one, the church at Sardis. And Dr. Johnson says they think they're alive, but really, they're dead. They're dead. And this other church, Philadelphia, the one that's sandwiched in the middle, they're weak. They don't have any resources. But he says, you know, you're still strong. So we see spiritual lifelessness in, uh, in Sardis. In Philadelphia, we see spiritual faithfulness. And in Laodicea, the one that gets the hardest rebuke, the strongest rebuke, they're very rich, very wealthy, and we're going to look at that in a moment, but they're living under spiritual delusion. You see, the allure and pressure from the outside, I mean, everybody knows this. If you remember, you know, I think, I know a lot of the kids in our church are homeschooled, and that's great. Good for you. Uh, but we're very, we're very glad that you're homeschooled. But even in your homeschool, you suffer with peer pressure. And if you go to school like I did, Coronado High School, right up the street here, there were 4,000 students at Coronado. And the pressure, the pressure to conform and be something that you're not is intense. And you know what? Homeschool, public school, doesn't matter. Once you grow up and you get out into the world, guess what? Pressure. Pressure. And now, in our day, in our age, in our world, the pressure is overwhelmingly intense. It's not just the daily newspaper anymore. It is 24-7 news, constantly. Constant social media, constant. Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You cannot get away from it because as we talked about last night in our addiction series that Jeff did, we're addicted to these, right? I mean, you see how close I have it up here? I never let it without... I mean, right now I'm uncomfortable because I can't really touch it. Now, whew, oh my gosh. Oh, that feels so good, right? But if I step back here, and then back again. All right, we all know what I'm saying. What do you see? The pressure can be intense. But notice, I hope you noticed, that with Sardis and Laodicea, these last two churches that were being corrected by Jesus, there's no external coercion. This is all from in here, all from inside. They want it. Rome's not persecuting him. Nobody's persecuting him. They're going for it themselves. 
So let's look at it. What do you see? What do you see? Well, first of all, this reality of spiritual lifelessness. Now look at your text, verses 1 and 2 to Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Your works are incomplete in the sight of God. What that means is, the essence... Of, one commentator said it this way, the essence of a church... Now listen... Because we have to put ourselves under the microscope. The essence of a church is not its programs, its buildings, its past achievements, its reputation, its institutional greatness, its doctrinal correctness. That's not the essence. But it's spiritual life. In other words, the fellowship that the people in the church have with God and with one another. He's telling Sardis that your reputation and your busyness mean nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I am overwhelmed at the idea of the things that we must do in this 21st century, 2018, just to get by. You know, I get up every morning at 5 a.m. I know a lot of you do. I think Scott here gets up at, what time do you get up, Scott? Like 2? 3. Okay, well, I was off by an hour. I mean, some people really get up early and work long hours and hard. I know we're busy. But do you know what busyness, what, what busyness that Jesus is saying here? It's not okay. Your works, those works, that busyness is simply empty. It's lots of fury, but it's just empty blow. You're keeping up appearances. Did any of you watch the BBC series uh, Keeping Up Appearances with Hyacinth? Don't you love her? I started, we started watching this in Florida. I mean, we would roar with laughter because she's this English woman and she lives, she's a middle class, and she, but she wants to be something else. And so she puts up all these airs. You know, I'm this, and she measures, you know, her writing and sends a calligraphy, all these crazy things. And nothing wrong with that. But it's all just out here. It's a fraud. She's always busy. She's always frantic. She's always putting on it. She just can't seem to, 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 to do anything that's genuine down at the bottom. Industry in itself is of no value. Dr. Thomas, Derek Thomas said. Industry of itself. It's just not, being busy is of no virtue just in and of itself. Well, I'll just be busy. What about the reputation? This, this, is kill, this kills me. Jesus says your reputation is a false reputation. In other words, a lot of hypocrisy going on in Sardis. A lot of hypocrisy. And folks, I don't know how much... You know, I, I spend a lot of time... I mean, I'm paid to read my Bible. Isn't that cool? And I'm paid to study. I'm paid to buy commentaries and do stuff like that. And I love it. I have that great privilege. But I'll tell you what, it is rough sometimes. Because the Bible is full of excoriating words against hypocrisy. And one of the charges that the modern world and the old ancient world used to make against the church was they're full of what? Hypocrites. And I've said here at Christ the King for years that if you're not a hypocrite, this is not the right place for you. 
We want hypocrites. We should have a sign in front that says, hypocrites are welcome here. (laughs) Because that's us. I mean, we're always putting on these masks. And we have to, because if you really knew a person, you probably would shy away from them. And if I really knew you, I might shy away from you. But the Bible is saying it's not okay. Trusting that reputation is not okay. The prophet Isaiah said these people, he's talking about his people, he's talking about the the church people. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Jesus quoted it again. And then if you've never read Matthew chapter 23, you need to read Matthew 23. Right before Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the end of the world. Okay, Matthew 23, He goes into the temple and delivers one of the most scathing addresses against religious church people that has ever... In fact, it is far and away the most of all of them, the most scathing. Listen. The scribes and Pharisees... I used to have the entire chapter memorized. I don't anymore. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift with one of their fingers the load. They do all their deeds to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the places of honor. At the feast, they love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Rabbi, Rabbi. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and every unclean thing. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How is it going to be possible that you escape the fire of hell? Well, anyway, it goes on for 39 torturing (laughs) verses. And he gets to the end of this sermon and he begins to weep. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking to his people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you together like a chicken gathers together her brood, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A picture of spiritual hypocrisy and death and lifelessness. And what about Philadelphia? Look at verses 7 and 8. 
I know your works. I have set before you an open door. No one is able to shut. I know you have a little power, but you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and I? It simply means that we are trusting Jesus Christ with everything in our lives, from the small little things all the way to the great big things. That we have, we have gone to this God, Jesus, and we've gone to Him and we've said, you know, my life is unmanageable. I, I do, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to so many things, I don't know what to do next. I know that in my own power, my own willpower, I cannot win. I can't achieve. I can achieve some things, but it's like whack-a-mole, right? You know the game? You know, you whack this one down, and what happens? Up pops that one. So you go and you whack that one, and this one comes. That's the life that we describe every Sunday in church. You're not on some trajectory to some high plane of existence, some great place. You are in a battle, a war. And Jesus commends this church. I don't know if any of you have read the book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. I read it a few years ago for the second time and I was just blown away. I'd read it years ago and I read it again. He has a whole chapter on faith. Listen, I wanna, I've shared this with you, I think, some years ago. But listen carefully to this. This is absolutely revolutionary believing here's how he describes biblical faith believing is directing the heart's attention to Jesus it's lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never listen never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives faith listen Faith is the least regarding of the virtues. It is by its very nature scarcely conscious of its own existence. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it but never sees itself, faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests. It pays no attention to itself at all. While we're looking at God, listen to this, while we're looking at God, we don't see ourselves. Blessed riddance. Don't you love that? Blessed riddance. Tired of looking at myself. I'm tired of looking at my failures. I'm tired of looking at how little my faith is. I don't even want to see it because it's pretty paltry. Blessed riddance. Listen, he goes on. The man who has struggled to purify himself has nothing but repeated failures and will experience real relief only, listen, my friends, listen, only when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one while he looks at Christ Listen, while he looks at Christ, the very things he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. It is God working in him to do and to will. 
Are you going to trust him? Do you see what he's saying? Each time, let, let me just put it this way. Each time we suffer, each time we experience grief or brokenness or pain or disappointment or disillusionment, every time we have our prayers Every time we have our prayers unanswered and we cry out to God, why? Why aren't you hearing my prayers? Why aren't you listening? Is there anybody up there? Am I just speaking to the wind? Why, why, why? And we're broken and we're disappointed and we're hurting. Every time God does not answer you. And yet... You choose to trust Him again. To go back again. With all of that, with all that disappointment, all that pain, all that hurt, all that confusion, all that disappointment, everything, all of it. Every time you choose to take all of that and go back to Him again, you're keeping His Word. Do you understand? You're trusting His Word because He said, I promise. And you're persevering in the faith. You are doing what this glorious church in Philadelphia is doing. Every time you say, I'm going back. And you tell Satan, I'm going back. I don't care what you say. I don't care if he ever answers me. I don't care if I ever see or hear another thing from him the rest of my life. I'm going back again because His Word is good. Amen? That's it. That's all it is. Persevering. And finally, we have this church, Laodicea. Let me go through this quickly because this, if there's a church of these seven that describe modern America, this moment, this 2018 moment in history, this is it. Listen carefully. Verses 15 and on. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were. Because you're lukewarm, I will spew you. It's a very graphic word. It does not mean spit. It does not mean spew. I won't even tell you. It's really bad. You say I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. You don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Look at those words. Wow, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction had led to a complacency in this church that was sickening to Jesus. Now, it's true. You can look in a Bible. I haven't gone through all this, but every one of these letters, there was geographic reasons why Jesus said the things he said. And Laodicea was noted for its tepid, murky, yucky water. They didn't have good water in Laodicea. And it was known all over the world. I mean, this was their thing. Like you talk about Laodicea, oh, their water's bad. What they had is what one scholar called affluenza. Do you love that? Affluenza. And here's how it's defined. Listen and see if this does not ring true of what we're dealing with in our culture today. An array of psychological maladies. This is how they're, how they're defining affluenza. Isolation, boredom, 
passivity, lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children. I'm bored. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Why don't you go get a job? How about that? Okay. By possession of great wealth. You see this affluenza. We've got so much, we're sick. Right? We're sick. An unhappy condition. Listen, I love this. An unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from a dogged pursuit of more. I told someone the other day that I have an iPhone 6. What's the one that's out now? What? What? It's a 10. So there's several iterations behind that. You know what they told me? Mine's a 5. I said, darn it. <laughs> I was trying to get them. You know, I'm trying to get you. you know, they brought, I was hoping they had a 10 so I could scold them. You know, Christian scolding, that would get them into church. Materialism, no less then persecution is the serpent's weapon against the church. Put that in your mind. Put it in your data bank because the entire book of Revelation, we're going to go into chapter 4 next week, 4 and 5. It's going to blow your mind. John gets taken up into heaven and he sees for the next 16... Well, actually, he goes on, it goes on to chapter 22, but for the next 16 chapters, he sees some stuff you cannot believe. It's hard to even describe it, what he sees. Good and bad. And we're going to get into that. It's just nutty what he sees. And he is stretching to get it across. Having money, listen, having money, power, influence, and success, listen carefully, folks. Having all those things is no indication of God's blessing. It may be, but it is not an absolute indication. Just getting your way in your life and everything's going your way is no indication of God's blessing. It could be, but it shouldn't assume that. Maybe, listen carefully, church of Jesus, listen. Maybe it's just that you're committing spiritual adultery. And that's why you're getting what you want. Do you hear it? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tone it down. Imagine if Jesus was saying this. I mean, you just heard him, right? I will spew you out of my mouth. I'll spit you out. Why are we seeing this? Why? We looked at what we see. I hope you saw those. There's more, but we just don't have time. Why are we seeing it? Well, I'll tell you why. Jesus says why. He tells Sardis, wake up. He tells Laodicea, open the door. And what John brilliantly does, 
He's not talking about evangelistic, uh, you know, my heart is closed, I need to open my heart because Jesus is knocking at my heart and He wants in. That is not what He's talking about. What John is brilliantly doing is referring back to two parables that Jesus taught way back when John was a young little guy and he was following Jesus around. Jesus taught two parables. One is in Luke chapter 12, the other is in Luke chapter 17, and there's some cross-references in the other Gospels. But... In these parables, Jesus tells a story. Do you all remember? He says, you know, there was a master who had all this kingdom and his big house and all that, and he leaves everything with his servants. And he tells them, I'm going on a trip. I'm going to be gone for a while. Here, listen, here are the keys to my kingdom. I'm going to leave them with you. And I'm going to go on this trip. And I want you to keep this house perfectly cared for because I'm coming back and I don't know, you don't know what time I'm going to come back I could come in the morning I could come in the afternoon I could come at night I could come late at night but I want you to have your lamps lit and I want you to be ready when I come back as if it's going to be in a moment in a second and they say okay we'll do it and they fall asleep they have their house broken into. Now I'm, I'm mixing a lot of parables, right? They have their house broken into and they have their treasure stolen, eaten by moths, taken away by rust. Thieves break in and steal. And the master comes home to his own. And he knocks. And they're not ready. And Richard Bauckham, amazing. The second coming is like a burglary for those who are unprepared. This knocking is a reference to the parable of the watchful servants. Jesus is master whose servants are expected to be ready when they return. So who do you see? Let me finish with this because I hope you saw it. I hope that after all these weeks, you're starting to see who you're supposed to see. Look at verse 5, verse 12, and verse 21, because this is where Jesus says to him who conquers this and this and this, and it's really easy just to kind of you know, shoot over it and you really don't think about what he's saying. But listen, to you who conquer, here's what he says. You'll be clothed with white garments, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will, look how many times, just count how many times he says name. I will never blot your name. I will confess your name before my Father and His angels. In other words, He's going to step someday, I don't know when, He's going to take this unworthy human being, me, your pastor, He's going to take me in front of God, and I'm going to be sitting there going, well, you know, and he's going to say, he's mine. I confess his name. Look at it. I will confess your name before my Father. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will never leave. I will write on you the name of my God. Here we go. City of my God, New Jerusalem, and my own new name. In other words, you'll get my name. I'll confess your name, but you're going to get my name as well. I don't know how you're sitting there, folks. 
And I will grant him to sit on my throne as I conquered and sat down on my father's throne. Do you see that? If you haven't read The Everlasting Righteousness by Horatius Boner, I hope you do someday. I've read it so much, it's falling apart. I love it. I read something from it every day. And I've shared this with you, but I want to share this with you because it speaks to this and we'll be finished. Listen. The name, the name. Do you know that Jesus lost his name? They stripped him naked. They took everything away from him. They pinned him up on the, on the cross and they put a sign over him. A mocking sign. Here he is, the king of the Jews. They mocked him down to his bones. He had no name. And here he is at the end saying, I'm going to give you my name. Listen to Bonar. To be entitled to use another's name when my own is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's clothing because my own is torn and filthy. To appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and persons. I'm now represented by Him. He now appears in the presence of God for me. All that makes Him precious and dear to the Father has been entrusted, transferred to me. His excellency and glory are seen as if they were mine. And I receive the love, the fellowship, the glory as if I had earned them all. So entirely one am I with the sin bearer that God treats me, listen, not merely as if I had not done evil, but as if I had done all the good which my substitute has done. In one sense, I am still the poor sinner once under wrath. But in another, I am altogether righteous and shall be forever. Because of the perfect one who lived and died for me. Will you trust Him? I mean, that's what He wants. He wants you to take all that mess and come running to Him. And He'll give you His name. He'll take yours, that, that other one, and give you His name. Put it on you. Give you a new name. I hope you'll trust Him. Let's pray. Father, please help us to receive this word. I don't, none of us deserves this. How could we? How could we ever come to you and say, Father, accept me on my own merits. I have nothing in my hand to bring. Simply to your cross we cling. So we ask most humbly with all our heart that you would please forgive us. 
that you would help us to be faithful, to persevere, to trust your word as the church in Philadelphia did, to look deeply into our hearts and see if we are trusting our reputation, trusting our false and busy works. And we pray, Father, that you'll cure us of this malady in our own day of affluenza. This church had it. We certainly may have it. Please help us. And as we come to your table, remind us that Jesus Christ died for me, for you, for us, that we might appear before God with new clothing and a new name. Please help us, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.